All right, welcome to episode 60 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. His name is David Livingston Smith. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of New England in Bidford, Maine. He earned his PhD from the University of London, King's College, where he worked on Freud's philosophy of mind and psychology. His current research is focused on dehumanization, race, propaganda, and related topics. His latest book that just came out it's called On Humanity. On Inhumanity. On Inhumanity, Dehumanization, and How to Resist It. Welcome, David. Ah, thanks. I'm, I'm happy to be with you guys. We're so happy to have you on. And so we're going to start off with a quote from David from an Aeon article that he wrote about, I think it was in about 2014, where it seemed like his sort of um, his journey in dehumanization or in the study of dehumanization, at least began to us sort of from our perspective. Okay. And so David wrote, dehumanization has been the feature of social life since the beginning of civilization, and it remains the source of enormous suffering. But despite its overwhelming importance, there has been little effort devoted to studying it. In fact, to the best of my knowledge, there is not a single university department, government agency or non-governmental agency that is specifically devoted, devoted to investigating the dehumanizing process. So David, what's it been like for you when you started studying, the, when you pretty much started studying dehumanization and when you began thinking of and writing on the topic and began thinking of researching the book, um, what is it that you found in terms of its treatment in academia? Well, yeah, so I actually first came across dehumanization seriously when I was working on a, a book about war, war and human nature. And when I was researching the penultimate chapter of the book, I came across all this wartime dehumanizing propaganda. I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And then I looked further and I found that almost all of the research literature on dehumanization was in social psychology. Like there was virtually nothing in philosophy, in political science, in anthropology, in any of these other disciplines. Uh, so a friend persuaded me, he said, David, you've got to write your next book on this. Everyone's going to have to cite you. Mm -hmm. I thought, okay. So then I started. And um, what, I, what, what the research for my book, Less Than Human, which is the precursor of uh, On Inhumanity, showed me is that there are no one at attempted to pull stuff together. So I had to go to all sorts of literatures and read lots and lots to find that paragraph or two that would be relevant. And so that got incorporated into Less Than Human, which was really well received and, and won a, a wonderful book award, actually. Um, so that kind of, that book got people outside of psychology a bit more interested. So now it's kind of taking off a little bit more, but still it's grossly, grossly understudied. And the literature, in, in my view, is very confused. Yeah. And uh, for our audience, um, how would you define dehumanization? Perfect question at this point. Yeah. <clears throat> That's a very important question because the word is used in lots of different ways. So the word entered the English language around about 1819, and it kind of accumulated meanings over the decades. So even in the scholarly literature, the word is used in lots of different ways as a name for lots of different processes. 
In fact, even if we confine ourselves to the psychological literature, that's the case. And then if you look at how it's used more generally, more broadly amongst the general public, I mean, it's all over the map. So, you know, as a preface to explaining what I mean by dehumanization, just want to emphasize that it's really, really important if we're investigating this topic to be really clear what we mean, because otherwise we just talk past each other, right? We're using the same word for different loosely related phenomena. So what I mean by dehumanization is the belief that others are subhuman creatures. So it's something that happens in your head. It's, it's not, as some people would say, a rhetorical process. It's not just using animalistic slurs against people. It's not the same as cruel and degrading treatment, although those two things are associated with it. It's this state of belief or the state of conceiving of others as less than human. Not lesser humans, less than human. Yeah. And I'm going to apologize. Um, so I made a mistake earlier. I actually thought I had David's definition written down and I did not. So thank you for asking for it. <laughs> <laughs> totally my mistake. Um, so, and then David, going into the book, right? Um, what are some of the things that you found that academia was particularly lacking in its sort of understanding of dehumanization or in its sort of, um, in its research on it? Well, I disagree with the, the main paradigms in psychology, the, the way that social psychologists conceive of dehumanization in the first place. And one of the problems with that literature, and I'll emphasize again, almost all the literature is literature in social psychology, mm -hmm. is that it tends to look at dehumanization as something entirely in, in people's heads. Now that might sound like a contradiction, right? Because I said it's something in people's heads, but people's heads don't exist in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. So to take it a little bit further then, Dehumanization is a psychological response to political forces. Mm -hmm. And you just can't understand it. You can't understand it as something going on in people's heads if you don't also look at what people's heads are in, the, the wider social and political world. And I, I found that that interface, which is so important, is it's, it's just not addressed very often in the dehumanization literature. And often when it is addressed, it's sort of lip service. But I think we need to give both dimensions equal weight. There's another factor which is utterly neglected, I think, you know, by almost everyone. I qualify it almost because I haven't read everything yet, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's the intimate connection between dehumanization and race or racialization. So these things are really closely tied together. Groups of people are first thought of as a race, and I think that has racism kind of built into it, before they're dehumanized. As I put it in the book, dehumanization is racism on steroids. So it's just a couple of things, but you know, there, there's, a, there's a lot more, because once you open yourself up to the political and social and cultural dynamics, of dehumanization, you can get a much deeper understanding of what's going on. Right. 
And do you believe the categories are inherently um, hierarchical, where it's like if sort of the way our brains divide things? Let's say in this case, in race in particular, I guess the question would be, why does the mind even need to divide categories or people up into races if it, the inherent sort of, um, I guess, drive isn't to sort of to, uh, categorize them in a hierarchical structure? Mm. Yeah, that's that's quite right. There, there are two, two components of what you you just talked about. One is hierarchical thinking generally, and the other is the, the political forces that result in the creation of races, or the invention of races, I prefer to say. So let's start with hierarchical thinking, because that's crucial. Like as soon as you say less than human, you're implying a hierarchy, right? Mm. Less, greater, the same. Now, for a very long time, uh, human beings have been involved in the project of conceiving of the universe, or more particularly, the world of living things, as hierarchically ordered. Mm -hmm. um, so in the Middle Ages, this was formalized in sort of a model called the great chain of being, where the most perfect beings were towards the top. You know, at the very top is God, right? Perfect, perfectly perfect. And then the archangels and the angels, and then we human beings modestly placed ourselves just below the angels, and then down, 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 down to inanimate matter. Mm. Um, so historians of ideas think of that model of the cosmos as something that arose in Europe, cobbled together out of um, the work of Aristotle and Plato. Uh, and they think that it kind of lived a long life and then died out late 18th century, early 19th century. I think that's utterly false <laughs> for a couple of reasons. One is it's, it's actually much older than Aristotle and Plato. We can find it in, in ancient Mesopotamia, in ancient Egypt, in ancient China, in African cosmologies, in pre-contact um, uh, Latin American or what became Latin American, indigenous American contexts and so on. So it's very, very widespread way of thinking. Um, and the other objection is it's still alive, right? We still think that way. Oh, how could you swat that mosquito? Oh, it's, it was only a mosquito, right? <laughs> well, we don't stop and think about that, but that, that implies that the, the life of this mosquito counts less than the life, say, of a human being, because it's lower down. It's a mere mosquito. Just one other component to add. Mm -hmm. um, this hierarchical notion then was, and this was expressed very explicitly in the 18th century, was also applied to human races, so-called. Mm -hmm. So the white Europeans who messed around with this stuff, again, modestly placed themselves at the apex of humanity and placed uh, others, uh, sub-Saharan Africans, Native Americans, Laplanders at, at the bottom, a hair's breadth away from the less than human creatures, mm -hmm. right? So they're almost, they're relegated to a position that's almost subhuman. Now, so this idea of hierarchy then, as you pointed out, yeah, it's, it's, it's baked into the notion of race. 
And you can see why that is if you look at how races get manufactured. So scientifically speaking, race is a nonsense. Mm -hmm. There's of course a great deal of human variation, some of it geographically linked, but variation is not the same as race. The idea of race is a way of ostensibly explaining human variation. Right. It's the idea that, well, there are a small number of types of people and everyone on earth is either a pure specimen of one of these types or a mixture of more, of more than one of them. These races get invented out of conflict and subjugation. So one group of people finds it advantageous to subjugate another group of people. Well, what legitimates that is the idea in their minds that these are people of an inferior kind. Um, and actually, we do them a favor by enslaving and impressing them, oppressing them. This is an idea that goes back to Aristotle and was very popular in the United States, right? Because, you know, they're, they're kind of primitive and they're, they're, they're physically weak and so on. So we can, they can benefit from our superior civility and rationality. And we can put them to work doing productive things. And that exercise is good for their health and so on. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's out of the matrix of domination and submission that races are, are created. Right. And it's very similar to, in my opinion, speciation. I mean, if you think about dividing species, what's, again, what's the point, right? If we're sort of, if we're trying to kind of siphon them off and say, well, these species are different from these species, I mean, you're trying to point to a fundamental difference. Yeah. And kind of going into that, right? I also, the, I a, the other sort of really important question in terms of the hierarchy or kind of in terms of the different categories is how is essentialism played into this? And how oh. is the, yeah. And how is Good. the note of, of I mean, sort you've of. Asked now you've asked the two crucial questions about the, the psychological dynamics of dehumanization. So just a word about the hierarchy. I mean, as I said, hierarchy is alive and well in our mindsets. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason why it's so robust, which maybe we'll get into later. We'll leave it to the side for now. Mm -hmm. Now, here's, here's a basic puzzle about dehumanization. How is it possible to look at another member of our species and think to yourself, that's not really a human being. That's some other kind of creature, some less than human creature. After all, dehumanizers, when they're engaged with those whom they dehumanize, are confronted with individuals that in every significant respect is in, are indistinguishable from those that they would consider human beings. So let's pretend, let's pretend that you're a couple of Nazis. Hopefully it's pretend, so I'm sure it is. It is. And I'm a, I'm a Jew, which I am, it's my bona fides, right? And you're like really committed, you've really drunk the Kool-Aid. Mm -hmm. And you look at me and you think of me as some kind of filthy, nasty, dangerous subhuman creature. Well, how do you do this? I mean, look, I'm wearing a shirt. I speak your language. I'm bipedal. 
I put up an umbrella when it rains. I have hopes and fears and I love my kids and all that kind of stuff. Well, I think the answer to that question, the only way we can meaningfully answer that question is to go to a body of psychological research, which really took off starting in 1989. And it's the research into what's called psychological essentialism. Mm -hmm. So here's the deal with psychological essentialism. Psychological essentialism is the disposition, the human disposition that we all share to first of all, carve the world of living things up into kinds like species. Um, what philosophers call natural kinds, not inventions. They're supposed to be objectively out there, right? Um, and then have the idea that what accounts for any individual being a member of that kind, that group, that category, is something deep inside them, which uh, Medna Nortoni, who wrote the first paper on this topic, 1989, called the essence, right? So there's something inside every dog that makes it a dog. It's not the dog's appearance that makes it a dog. What's the appearance? It goes woof woof, it's furry, it's got four legs, but there are dogs with less than four legs, there are dogs without fur, there are dogs that don't bark. All those factors of appearance can be varied and we still consider it a dog. Well, why? Because we have this idea that there's this inner dogginess. These outward things are just sort of symptoms of that because the essence is supposed to be responsible for the observable features of the individuals which are typical of the kind. You with me so far? Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> Good. Okay. So that's true of, of how we think of human beings too, right? What makes a human being human? Human essence. In the old days, it was considered the human soul. More re nowadays, people who know nothing about genetics say, well, it's the genome. Mm -hmm. There are all kinds of stand-ins for the essence idea. Um, so given that, given that we think we're disposed, strongly disposed to think of uh, biological kinds in essentialistic ways. Here's a really interesting ramification of that. Psychological essentialism allows that the appearance of an individual is deceptive, that their appearance belies their essence. Think of the dog that doesn't bark, that hasn't fur, that doesn't have fur, right? So, an individual in the essentialistic way of thinking may look like one kind of being, but really on the inside be another kind of being. So there's this very, this idea of a misleading appearance. Now this idea comes really easily to us. Uh, think of um, vampire movies, mm -hmm. right? Like we have no trouble at all with the idea now, there's this individual looks like a full-fledged human being, but inside they're not, there's something else. Mm -hmm. This is a theme that horror actually plays on quite a bit. So, so essentialism is crucial for explaining this puzzle. So you Nazis, you can see me as a, as 
as subhuman, even though I look and act human, because you can think, well, he's really just a counterfeit human being, you see. His, his appearance belies his essence. And when we dehumanize people then, what we do is say, however they appear, they have the essence of something subhuman, you know, deep inside. Mm-hmm. So they're really subhuman. Is that to just make ourselves feel more superior than the other? Is that a function of uh, tribalism? No, I think it's way worse than that. Mm-hmm. Right. So there are all sorts of small bigotries and biases and, and so on. But I think that dehumanization has a function. Mm-hmm. And that function is to disable inhibitions against violence. So if I can give you the backstory, then you can always tell me to shut up, right? If I'm rambling on too long. Go ahead. <laughs> tell that to my students. They never take advantage of it. <laughs> they, do, they can't. One kid said he would, but he actually couldn't get the words out of his head. <laughs> I'm sure you're differential. Maybe you'd, differential. maybe you'd be able to tell by our facial, facial gestures when we're ready for you to stop talking. <laughs> yeah. Okay. When you start yawning, Austin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Looking at each other, rolling your eyes. Okay. <laughs> That's a dead giveaway. Okay, so um, you might ask, well, why do we need some gimmick to disable inhibitions against violence? And if you look at human history, why even say there are inhibitions against violence? Mm-hmm. So let's roll the clock way, well, I guess way back, starting with, but starting with the present. We homo sapiens are a super social species. Mm -hmm. There is no mammal that comes anywhere near to our level of sociality. Uh, And our sociality extends beyond our immediate communities. We embrace strangers, like you're embracing me and I'm embracing you. We've never met until this moment. We're having a good time. you know, and if you lived in my neighborhood, we might very well hang out, have a beer together, and so even I don't, even though I don't, never met you before. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we live in these large cooperative groups. Our flourishing, in fact, our very survival is predicated on that. A human being alone doesn't have much of a chance, right? Mm-hmm. We're not particularly fast. We don't have natural weapons like big teeth and claws and so on. We depend on each other. Now, every social species has to have inhibitions against lethal, and well, let's say extreme violence. It can be sublethal. Extreme violence against members of their community mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. If you're ripping each other's heads off, you can't have a social existence, right? right? It's just impossible. We human beings being hypersocial have to have especially strong inhibitions against committing these acts of violence. And because our sociality extends beyond our immediate communities, and that's been the case for a very long time, we know that from paleoanthropological evidence, we have inhibitions also against harming strangers, people we've never seen before, things from people from over the other side of the mountain. Right. But we also have these great big brains and we're able to think instrumentally. And we can think to ourselves, boy, you know, me and my people here, we could really do well if we went over the mountain and exterminated every one of them 
and took their resources or enslaved them. You know, that would be just so beneficial for us. But the problem here is you can think that way, but you're between a rock and a hard place then, right? You're thinking, oh yeah, that would be really great to do, but oh my God, I have this horror, this deep gut level horror of spilling human blood. Well, over the millennia, this is what I think anyway, it's obviously speculative. It's making sense though so far. Mm -hmm. Over the millennia, human beings have developed ways of selectively disinhibiting violence. Right. Dehumanizing propaganda is one such way. And David, can I just... Yeah. Just, so I would just say, just in terms of evolution, that would make so much sense because if we even think about kind of our environment now, I mean, for the most part, people with um, antisocial personality disorder, psychopaths, and people with narcissistic personality disorder, I mean, unless they become president, I mean, for the most part, they're ostracized from communities. So one could understand how nature would have selected the people who are sort of more friendly and more agreeable to obviously yeah. survive. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. So dehumanizing propaganda, getting people to think of others as less than human is one of several cultural technologies that we've developed to enable us to perform horrible, horrible acts of atrocity on other human beings. And you'll notice if you look at actual historical examples that dehumanization is not just representing the other as a subhuman creature. It's gonna be a subhuman creature that deserves killing or exploitation in some way. It's not kittens and butterflies. It's vermin and predators or beasts of burden, which goes with slavery. So a lot of people get me wrong. They They think that I believe that dehumanization stands alone and is necessary for such acts. No, historically, we can find all sorts of other methods, the use of certain ritual practices to induce altered states of consciousness before the, before the attack, the use of intoxicants from hallucinogens to alcohol to disinhibit uh, certain religious ideologies. These are all methods that human beings have evolved to sort of shape themselves in such a way as to override these deep, gut level inhibitions against harming others. It's strange that, um, that dehumanization still has a place in the world. I, I don't think that it should anymore uh, with the internet and being that we essentially live in a, a global community. Um, it's very strange that it still propagates and there's still that kind of behavior going on. Right. Yeah. So, so I think that maybe takes us to another aspect of dehumanization, which is super important. Dehumanization comes from the outside. As I intimated earlier, it's not just something that happens inside of our heads. And a moment ago, I talked about dehumanizing propaganda. Mm. So we dehumanize others because others, other people, get us to think of them that way. Remember on the story I've told, we have this gut level kind of inhibition and that goes with a gut level recognition. If you look into another human face, especially a pair of human eyes, 
you just can't help seeing human. Mm -hmm. That's why, just by the way, it's very difficult psychologically for almost everyone to kill at close range. Right. Because you're confronted with those signals that clamp down on violence. You see human and you can't help it. You can't turn it off. Right. Which leads to some interesting complications that maybe we'll get into. Okay. So um, um, I'm sitting at a desk here. Well, let's talk about your microphones, actually. Mm -hmm. Your microphones are solid objects. And if you look at them, you think, well, at least the lower parts of them, there aren't any gaps. They're gapless. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? That's what your senses tell you. But of course, a physicist will tell you it's mostly empty space. Right. Now, I assume you accept that, even though mm -hmm. you can't help seeing them as gapless. And you accept that because the physicist is supposed to know. Right. Physicist is the expert, the authority. Physicist is supposed to know. So even though it flies in the face of what your senses tell you, you take it on board. Mm -hmm. Dehumanization works like that. So we dehumanize others when there's someone who's supposed to know, someone whom we grant authority to, be it a politician, a religious leader, a scientist like the Nazi race experts, who tell us, oh yeah, they may look human, but they're not really, they're animals. They're animals. Right. And that's particularly effective if they also scare us. This gets into the psychology of propaganda such that if we were worried that if we trust our gut feelings, it will be, we'll pay a very high cost for that. Mm -hmm. um, and there are all sorts of propagandistic gimmicks that play into this. It's, it's stuff I've written about actually, and things I've written about Donald Trump and his rhetorical style. Mm -hmm. um, also, the, um, sometimes it's not a single authority figure. It's not a, a a Joseph Goebbels or Adolf Hitler, it's beliefs that are just sedimented in the community, ideologies. Right. So you grow up. Look, I grew up in the Deep South in the 50s and 60s, tail end of the Jim Crow era. So you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a young guy, <laughs> despite appearances. <laughs> and and uh, like everyone, I mean, it was just baked into the culture that black people are at least inferior human beings, if not actually subhuman creatures. So that's what the past local pastor would say. That's what the sheriff would say. That's what your parents would say as, as you're growing up. And that's how we acquire most of our beliefs. You know, most of the things we believe, it's not because we've seen it. It's because we've read it or we've been told it and we grant the person who has informed us a certain level of, of credence. That's what makes culture possible, right? This ongoing handing down of, of knowledge and information. And so now we have the internet. Now the internet can certainly work against dehumanization, yeah. but it can equally well work for it, right? right? Anything that facilitates communication, the transfer of information, can enhance dehumanization. And one of the problems here with the internet is, of course, these ideas can proliferate very, very quickly, very rapidly. 
Right. And you have echo, echo chambers or certain algorithms dedicated to giving you more of the... Exactly. Right. So once you start, you're just fed more and more and more and more. And that right. seems then like basically what's out there to you, if that's you know, what you're exposed to. Right. And then also in addition to confirmation bias, I mean, where we essentially only pick out or focus on the information that already proves what we believe in. Absolutely so, right. Yeah. So right. all and, kinds of cognitive biases kind of get on board here right. to foster the dehumanizing mindset. Right. And it also reminds me because I remember there was a statement from James Baldwin, you know, way back when, where he said something along the lines of, um, so I'm going to add this part, but then I'm going to say what he said. Um, so my understanding is when it comes to, uh, what are they called? Uh, when it comes to sort of populism, not necessarily all populism. I mean, I'm more sympathetic toward the Bernie Sanders version of it, mm -hmm. so, but the sort of right version of populism where you have these ideas that are kind of propagated that are not necessarily ideas that are taught to the public. I mean, they're pretty much reinforcements. These are ideas that the public already believes. Yes, yes. No, that's absolutely right. So one of the things I get into a little bit in On Inhumanity, but I get into much more deeply in my next book, which I've a couple of weeks ago submitted to the publisher, which mm -hmm. is on dehumanization too, but it's, it's kind of a, it's somewhat more detailed, uh, somewhat more academic, but not boring. <laughs> I don't do, I do, I don't do boring. <laughs> and then so kind of going into um, the James Baldwin quote, I remember him saying something along the lines of, well, psychologically speaking, we tend to kind of, or not we, but he was saying in terms of races, essentially, that there are sort of times when as a people, we tend to, you know, to speak to Alan's point of feeling superior, we tend to need to have a bad guy, right? And we tend to have somebody who's pure evil, whereas we can see ourselves in contrast as being pure good. Yeah. So the way Right. So kind of using psychoanalytic theory, the way James Baldwin's conceptualized it was that it was pure shadow projection, where we could say, here are these people, right? And you can actually see this in the dictionary, which was kind of popularized in the Malcolm X movie by Spike Lee, where if you look up the term white, you would see pure, right? Sort of like effervescent. Oh, yes. Right, right, right. And you would see these wonderful terms, whereas if you looked at black, you would see dirty, evil, vicious. Sure. Right, right. And then so the way kind of James Baldwin would say it is that essentially as a psychology, right, what we would see is that we would see that people have this inherent need to kind of dehumanize others, at least partially. So outside the practical and taking away their resources, yeah. they view themselves as the angels. And then you have a populist who comes along and says, yeah, yeah, no, you guys are right. That's, you, you're absolutely right. Those are the bad guys. <laughs> They're the terrorists, right? They're the yeah. rapists. The people across the border over there, they're the ones who are going to hurt us. And so if we want to, if you guys want help, right, you would have to obviously elect me. Yes. So if you actually look at the terms white and black, of course, no one is white and no one is black. If you're using right. them as color terms. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we three are beige. Mm -hmm. Right. My, my spouse is kind of chocolatey, mm -hmm. brown. You know, that we have a, we have a, a, a spectrum of, diversity, right. incrementally moving from one end to the other end. So white and black had to have these particular connotations and, and, and they're, they're functioning here, not as color terms, really, but as political terms, as ways of categorizing people in terms of a hierarchy. Right. And these were invented. So, and you can, you can watch this. I mean, uh, when, uh, the English first settled in North America, they described Native Americans as white. It's only when conflict developed that they turned red. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. So that's in terms of color, but it's also very important to understand that race is not necessarily color coded. 
So Americans tend to think of it as almost interchangeable with skin color because of the peculiarities of our history. But uh, say, um, well, uh, Nazis and Jews, right? Same color, but Jews were persecuted because of beliefs about them as a race, right. not because of anything else. Or uh, Hutu and Tutsi in Rwanda, right? right? So what, what's essential about the idea of race is that there are these kinds of people arranged on a hierarchy and that your racial identity is inescapable. It's transmitted by descent and it's a life sentence, basically. It's right. what you essentially are. Um, right, and it's so, actually, to yeah. me, it's even amazing that you can have something like, um, so the, the war obviously in the genocide in Rwanda, because if you think about it, I mean, these were, these, not all, I mean, they were neighbors, right? These were people who kind of lived right by one another, yeah. which actually just, I mean, not to divert too much from this, but this actually reminds me of the idea of, um, or in pretty much in primitive kind of, um, or in zoology or in primitive archaeology, well, not archaeology, uh, primatology. So what we talk about is like, where do you have like these, um, so when, you know, where the Congo River divides, right on top, you have sort of um, the bonobo monkeys. Yeah. I'm sorry, no, on top you have the gorillas and you have the chimps and then on the bottom you have the bonobo monkeys, but they mm -hmm. couldn't even be, they could not be more different from one another. Yeah. Where you have like the monkeys on top who are obviously like vicious and just aggressive and awful. And then you have the monkeys on the bottom who are very sort of affable and sort of yeah. cooperative and compassionate, yeah. right? And it's sort of, it seems the same thing. It seems very similar to kind of what happened in Rwanda too. And it's amazing that something like that could happen because we're not talking even about different sort of, you know, quote unquote racist. We're talking about people who are virtually identical in every sense of the word, but of course they're missing, one side is missing the essence. But they racialized each other. They racialized each other. And yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is a really interesting and important and vital aspect of human sociality, that the boundaries of our groups are highly malleable. Uh, unlike chimpanzees, right? Chimpanzee, us is the local breeding group, right? Everyone else is not us. This is true of social, most social animals. It's true of ants. Mm -hmm. There are chemical signals to identify who's a member of a colony and who isn't. Right. Uh, but we can expand the boundaries of our communities to include others or extrude others out you know, former insiders become outsiders mm -hmm. so the boundaries of our communities are very very labile and you, you can get things like what happened in rwanda or what happened in germany or what happened in oh gosh you know virtually any other genocide you can think of in the last 150 years right yeah yeah. So propaganda, if, if I can come back, just the point I wanted to make with what you said. Remember, you can tell me to shut the hell up. <laughs> Go ahead. The, um, the, the way I see it is that propaganda ignites, tends to ignite pre-existing systems of belief, simmering away below the, the surface. Right? So... We can see this with that. If we look at the history of anti-Semitism in German speaking countries, I do a study of that in my next book, mm -hmm. like from the 14th century onward, Nazi propaganda ignited these beliefs about Jews, which had remained latent for centuries. Uh, so propaganda tends not to create dehumanization. It tends more to elicit it, to bring it out, to give permission right. for it.
And according to your research, what sort of environments tend to foster dehumanizing? Uh, well, dehumanization comes typically with a sense of terror and helplessness. So my analysis of this actually comes from Freud, from Freud's, one of Freud's works on religion. I was a Freud scholar in my former life. I was psychotherapist and a Freud scholar. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah Freud's my homie, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, wow, we can even pick up on that later on. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay, so you, in, in Future of an Illusion, I have a, an article on Eon just about this, by the way. Okay, cool. Called um, Why We Love, well, I can't even remember, but Why We Love Dictators, something like that. Okay. Um, in any case, so Freud saw religious belief as a response to the sense of helplessness. So here we are in this world, we're vulnerable to the forces of nature, in the end, no matter how good the medical care is, in the end, nature's going to get us. Right. Not to mention floods and famines and so on. And we're also helpless in the face of injustice, the things that human beings do to one another. Um, and this elicits in us a yearning for salvation. And that yearning for salvation throws us back on the experience of being a helpless infant, and seeking protection from a, a parent. That's Freud's analysis. Right. When I started studying um, propaganda, I, the, like the most important source that I discovered was a paper that was written in 1941 by a psychoanalyst and philosopher named Roger Moni Carl. Moni Carl was invited by a friend to uh, come see Hitler and Goebbels make speeches in the run-up to the 1932 German elections. And Monikar wrote a paper about what he observed. And he said there are like three movements. Think of it as a concerto with three movements, or I guess it would be a sonata. The first, the speaker makes the audience depressed. You're, we're the laughing stock of the world. We've been taken advantage of in the Treaty of Versailles. We've, you've, we've let down the great destiny of the German people in our nation, and so on. And once he gets them worked up into what Monte Carlo calls an orgy of self-pity, then changes tune and says, yeah, but you know, it's really not you. It's the Jews and the communists. Right. They're eating away. They're invading us from the outside and eating away at us from the inside. Well, if you swallowed the first thing, you, you're psychologically prepared to swallow the second, and then they're all freaked out and terrified and feeling really helpless and vulnerable. And then the magical solution gets offered, what um, I think he calls the, um, the manic solution. Join the Nazi party. We will sweep away all of our enemies. Make Germany great again. And actually said that. Make Germany great again. So it's skillful rhetorical styles like this that are, that are often used to foster dehumanizing attitudes. Right. It's because I've read this stuff and studied this stuff that I took Donald Trump seriously from the beginning. Because if you look at the first speech he made when he came down that escalator, mm -hmm. it follows that pattern to perfection, to absolute perfection.
Right. That's crazy. So basically it's you, uh, it's shame mm -hmm. or self pity yeah. followed by uh, blame scapegoat, yeah. or scapegoat yeah. and then and followed by magical solution. Yeah. Huh. Right. Which is sort of a, kind of in line with shadow projection where you're pretty much blaming another or another group of people for all of your problems as a country. It's like, Oh, it's not our fault. That's right. It's their fault. Right. But you start by making people think it's their fault, mm -hmm. exacerbating that sense. So they're, the, 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 the uh, propagandist is winding people up, playing on just basic human vulnerabilities and insecurities. Right. And then, of course, if you think it's your fault, and then you get let off the hook, you can right. blame it on someone else. Yeah. Those evil, nasty subhumans over there. I mean, that's, that becomes very tempting, although terrifying, because now you're in a, a demon-haunted world, and you need Big Daddy to come and banish them for you. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is I think that, um, so we don't even, so it's really about interpretations and not so much about sort of the kind of the triggers of the danger that people are in. Um, I remember reading a book in college, which really blew me away called Waiting for the Barbarians by J.M. Coetzee. Have you ever read it? Oh, this 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 rings a bell. Yeah. Oh, so what was so interesting about this book? So it was about this vast empire, which was supposed to, uh, from my vague understanding or vague memory, was supposed to have been predicated on sort of the U.S. empire. And so Coetzee was like a huge, like he was anti sort of um, imperialist. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh -huh. So he hated George Bush, both of them. Um, so the idea was essentially that you had this empire that actually ran out of places to conquer. And so essentially they were pretty much bored and most of their time was kind of spent like doing nothing. And so the magistrate, who was uh, pretty much the protagonist of the book, spent most of his time sort of digging, right? He was kind of like... Um, he was an amateur archaeologist. And so most of his time was just spent kind of like learning about the civilizations of the past that lived in that area. Mm -hmm. um, and so eventually what happened was somewhere down the line, these people got the idea that the barbarians, which were like the sort of limited primitive peoples that lived mm -hmm. somewhere, somewhere in the outskirts of the empire, that they were actually threatening to pretty much to invade and then to conquer them. And why none of this made any sense was that, first of all, you have this vast empire that pretty much conquered about three fourths of the continent or I think even of the planet. Mm. I don't remember exactly in this story. But um, some, but they really believed that these this little tiny group that had no weapons, nothing, so no army or military that one could think of or speak yeah. of, and that they were actually going to invade them. And so what they ended up doing was they actually captured them, and then the whole story surrounded like, what do we do with these people? And it was like, <laughs> do we kill them? Uh, do we torture right. them? Do we figure out like who their accomplices are? If there's anyone else gonna, wow. that's trying to invade us, right? And so it's like this whole sort of vision of this war or whatever it even was, this sort of. Um, it was more like a cold war. Let's say that it wasn't an actual war. And so, but this sort of image behind it was that it was a fantasy. It was dreamt up. There was no actual yeah. threat. And so sometimes it seems like we, even when there is no threat and even when things are going well and when people are simply bored and lacking meaning, that there are times where the mind works in such a way where it can invent meaning through inventing enemies that are non-existent. Hmm. Yeah. So it's, it sounds like a book I should read. It sounds really, it was really excellent. Cool. It really, right. It blew us away. I remember we had a discussion of like, why would people do that? Why in the world would people who sort of like, um, obviously in some sense have like met the American dream and have sort of everything that one could think mm -hmm. of, why in the world would they go and start a war with people who have nothing with, who yeah. pose no danger, who have literally not even, they'd never even had major resources to offer them. Right. Yeah. Obviously that's one sort of idea that, you know, yeah. we do it for practical reasons, but in this case, sort of this empire had everything the world could offer them and it still wasn't enough. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, again, it's a, a point that Freud made, I think is a very good point is 
this isn't how he put it, but this is what the point that he made is, we human beings can always envisage more better. You know, we have this power, we have imagination, we can picture possible worlds. And that's right. both a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. right? sure. uh, you know, because it, it can render us ever hungry for, for something better, for something greater, for, um, and so on. Right. Yeah. Also, so, so related to what you said, it's, I mean, it's typically the most vulnerable and the most marginalized members of a society that, that get dehumanized. It's, it's really paradoxical. If you, if, and, you know, and, maybe, and maybe that in some way also kind of makes sense. Because if you think about an empire that's on top of the world, I mean, isn't the fear that you're going to be knocked off by somebody and somewhere down the line, you are actually going to be invaded. So in a way, it's sort of like a precursor to an actual threat or a preemptive strike. So yeah. even if, if they mm -hmm. didn't see that in the book, the idea might necessarily be that, oh, we have to make sure that these sort of people who could potentially be enemies on the outskirts don't take over. Yeah, particularly if we have done these things ourselves, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Especially so. Yeah. Right. It's like a defensive tactic. Right, right, right. But in their minds, so you know how we spoke about earlier that, you know, kind of um, that we have to sort of, uh, what's the word? Do we have to kind of like invent an idea or invent a reason to, you know, or not invent a reason, uh, create sort of a mental ability to be able to dehumanize and kill people. In mm. some way, it's as though these people have convinced themselves to be able to hurt them, to hurt these sort of barbarians. They've convinced themselves that, no, 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 they actually pose a legitimate threat. We And from what I remember in the book, they had like minor sources, like somebody said that they could have been planning it or that he heard over he heard them talking or he heard them point or he saw them like pointing to some some magistrates well, or, yeah once you're in that yeah. headspace of course right then you interpret everything in a kind of paranoid way right, right. you can right. always piece things together to fit into the the big picture that you're uh you're concocting and that you it's, it's sort of laden with terror for you Right. Um, and right. because if you, if you don't pay attention to the signs, you know, what if you're wrong? Oh, it's bad news, right? So you're, in fact, in that kind of situation, we know from psychological studies that our bar for assessing evidence really gets much lower. We're much more permissive with evidence if the risk is very, the risk of being wrong is very high. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, David, have you found in your work that, I mean, this is my interpretation, obviously, mm -hmm. it might not necessarily be yours, yeah. but have you found that most white supremacists, they're so afraid uh, because they feel like they, at least even if they don't admit this, my understanding is because they really have nothing more than to offer than the color of their skin. And it's very easy for them to be knocked off or to be replaced by virtually anybody else. So I'm wondering if in your kind of assessment, you find that they feel like, at least when they admit it, that they don't really have much else to offer. And so really it's a way for them to make I don't know. I mean, I, I don't have the information. Okay. So I, there are certainly white supremacists um, around now and who were around historically, who were very cultivated, very intelligent, uh, accomplished people. Right. I mean, that, that is certainly the case. You know, Reinhard Heydrich, uh, one of the nastiest of the Nazi high command, was, um, he was a, uh, if memory serves me correctly, he was a champion fencer, a pilot, a, a talented musician. Right. Uh, in, in our own time, Jared Taylor, who's like the one of the faces of he wouldn't he doesn't call himself a white supremacist. He calls himself a, a white advocate. 
Mm-hmm. But the trend now is to use labels that make these people seem more acceptable because they wish to, they, they wish to infiltrate the mainstream. Um, you know, he's a Yale educated, multilingual, speaks Japanese and French and, and English perfectly, is a musician and so on. There are others who, who don't have anything going for them. Yeah, and I'm sure that the mission makes them feel important. It makes them feel good. And it, 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 it soothes that sense of maybe insufficiency or, or failure. Do you feel like any, any amount of education might be able to, I don't know, uh, eliminate dehumanization or yeah, constrain it? Yeah. So, you know, the subtitle of the book is dehumanization and how to resist it. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a number of components to this. Um, So in my analysis, just to put what I've already said in a slightly different way, dehumanization happens when people in positions of authority play on our psychological vulnerabilities to get us to have certain beliefs about others and so, so as to foster atrocity and violence and oppression and so on. So if you just think about that, you can see there are two fronts. One has to do with self-knowledge. There's no shot you can give someone. There's no inoculation, right? The vulnerability to to dehumanizing rhetoric is part of the human condition. So we need to understand what it is about ourselves that makes us vulnerable to this sort of influence. Now, a lot of people, there's a big barrier there because people say, no, I couldn't do that, right? I couldn't do what the Germans did. Yeah, right. You grew up in the 1930s and you went to your race hygiene classes in school and so on. Believe me, you would be right on board with that. Um, So we need to understand some psychology, something about ourselves so we can be vigilant, so we can catch ourselves when we start slipping into that direction. Um, Two, we need to be educated about history. And the reason for that is, look, all nations have blood on their hands. All nations are born in violence. Recognizing that we did that in the past shows us that we can do it again. We, us, the good guys, right? And this, in our country, this is very hard because this ideology of American exceptionalism is, is very robust. The United States has never been brought to its knees and forced to own up to its crimes. Um, so that there's that bit, and that's got to be real history, not the crap that students learn in school. Mm-hmm. I teach a course on race, racism, and beyond, and my students, you know, it's undergraduates, liberal arts undergraduates, they just don't know the history. They they really they they have the cartoon version. The sheer horror and savagery of this history is un, almost incomprehensible cruelty that were inflicted on, on, on black people and Native Americans. They don't know, and I have to find ways of opening their eyes to that. So that's one bit. The other is political intervention, supporting institutions like the press, a free press, freedom of speech, 
noticing the kind of rhetoric that's moving towards dehumanization. And it's not always explicit. So it's, it's sometimes coded. So, you know, uh, a politician will talk about people swarming across the border or infecting the nation. They've never said that these are subhuman, but that's where your mind goes when you hear swarm and infection, right? So there's plausible deniability there. So there's social and political on one hand, and part of that is understanding, knowing the warning signs. Mm -hmm. The other is self-knowledge, education and self-knowledge and in history. Right. And I and think that's, we, yeah, that's the best we can do, I think. And I also wish that people kind of had a broader, or we had a broader understanding of cognitive distortions, because I mean, a lot of what plays into this is a distorted way of seeing the world, whether we're talking about black and white, sure. overgeneralizing, stereotyping. I mean, a lot of people just sort of, I mean, first of all, everybody engages in distortions, but the thing is like for people who are educated into in them, we can kind of take a step back and say, oh, I see what I'm doing. I'm stereotyping or yes. I see what I'm doing, sure. right? And I'm sort you of can catch yourself. So. Right. If you're lucky, you can catch yourself. Yeah. That's part of the self-knowledge bit, I think. Yeah. Right. Excellent. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in terms of, um, so I guess, how do we get that sort of, or how do we promote that education? Oh, well, now I'm, I'm <laughs> well, yeah, that's what that I, look, as I say to people, I don't, I'm not interested in writing books that 12 academics will read. I want to change the world. Yeah. And this is a, a sheer folly <laughs> that my book will change the world, but maybe it'll influence it, nudge it a little bit in the right direction. So you use whatever tools you have, yeah. right? My, my tool is, my main tool is writing and teaching. But we, we have opportunities every day in our social interactions, in our voting behavior, in the causes that we support, right. and so on, to just try and do the right thing. Right. Um, and what, what I love so much about your work is that, um, so just kind of piecing it together with other forms of information. So, I mean, I agree with you, obviously one book isn't necessarily going to change the world, but the thing is, if we put everything together, I think it makes a substantial difference. So what this reminds me of is of Kate Mann, the philosopher, her book, Down Girl, and your version of sort of, um, your version of dehumanization is very similar to hers, where she kind of stays away from the psychology of, let's say, misogyny, because for her, she says, well, I mean, it's very kind of, first of all, so you don't really know what's going on internally, right? But we actually do know what's going on politically. We know what's going on in the community, societally, right? So when we look at the sort of culture and we say, okay, here's, there's a reason why we believe in the patriarchy. And it's not so much about what the person is feeling or thinking, but it's more so how they're treating people. And what I love about your work is you're pretty much doing the same thing. You're saying, let's look at the events and let's look at current events. Let's look at past events. Let's piece them together. And let's not so much focus on the person's mentality or kind of their mindset, but let's focus on how they're actually treating people because all of this indicates that they're dehumanizing them. I mean, can you really know what's in the person's mind? Obviously not, but that's not the point. The point is not so much to think about what the person is thinking and feeling, but it's to think about how they're treating other people. Well, it's both, I think, because of course you're making inferences about what's going on in my mind as I speak, and I'm making inferences about. So we have certain sources of evidence that we can use to draw conclusions about what's going on in people's heads. Mm -hmm. uh, those evidence, that evidence is, is always behavioral evidence in, in the final analysis, right? You know, it's the sounds that you make from your mouth and your bearing and your actions. If I were to have information that, you know, you're leaving to attend a KKK rally, I would revise my impression of you that I've formed so far. So it, it's both. Right. Kate, of course, doesn't think dehumanization is a thing. One of the chapters in the book, she talks about that. This is one we kind of argue back and forth about, about that. 
Oh, interesting. Why? What's her conception of it? She's just a skeptic about it. Um, she th- so. How much time do I have? Plenty. Okay. Okay. Because there's a whole <laughs> chunk we haven't gotten into, and uh-huh. this is the way to get into it. Okay. So one of her her arguments, uh, which several people have made earlier on, mm-hmm. is that if you actually look at examples of dehumanization or of ostensible dehumanization, what you find is that the person who you might be tempted to consider a dehumanizer implicitly or explicitly thinks of the other as a human being. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in the space of a single sentence they'll refer, I have lots of examples of this actually in my next book and some in On Inhumanity some very telling ones. They'll refer to them as vermin and as, say, criminal. And criminal implies humanness, right? Mm-hmm. Right? So this is really v- very common. And Kate's argument is something, something I hope I'm doing it justice here, um, something like, well, that shows us that they're, they're not really thinking of the other as a sub- subhuman creature. They're simply trying to insult them or degrade them. And that could only work if these, this other believes that they're a human being, right? So mm-hmm. it seems to belie the idea that when we refer to others in this sort of way, we're really thinking them of, of them as subhuman. And of course, in many cases, that's absolutely correct. So you get mad if someone say bitch or pig or something like that. You don't think they're a dog or a pig. It's right. just a way of using words as, as weapons. Mm-hmm. So I call that the problem of humanity. I think, I think it's a genuine thing to think about. And that's connected to another problem for my theory. Um, and that's um, what I call the problem of monstrosity. It's a, it's a criticism I've leveled against my own theory. I don't think anyone else has, which is that when people are dehumanized, they're very often thought of not simply as vermin or or wolves or other kinds of dangerous or unclean animals, but as monsters and demons, fiends. So that doesn't fit my, not, monsters aren't anywhere on the hierarchy, you see. That it doesn't fit the model I described to you earlier. Mm-hmm. So it's those two things together which led me to revise the view I presented in my 2011 book, Less Than Human. And here's what I think, now what I think happens with dehumanization. On the one hand, we take on board what the experts tell us. Those, you know, those black people, they're, they're really just beasts in human form. Mm-hmm. They're just animals. But on the other hand, like I said, on the gut level, we can't help seeing others as human. So what this produces is a contradictory state of mind. Mm-hmm. On one hand, they're subhuman. On the other hand, they're human, and not just half and half, wholly human, wholly subhuman. Mm-hmm. Well, that explains, that, that solves both of those problems. So the, the problem of, well, dehumanizers kind of alternate between talking about others as human and subhuman. Well, of course they do. It's like the duck-rabbit duck illusion, mm-hmm. because you're seeing them as both. But when you see them as both, this also has a different effect, a very toxic effect, and I've roped in a whole literature 
of people who have done work which throws light on this, it turns them into monsters. So if you think of monsters, like in horror fiction, think of whatever your favorite horror film is. Mm -hmm. what, what a monster is, is an impossible combination of contrary kinds of things. So a zombie is alive and dead at the same time. A werewolf is a wolf and a human at the same time and so on. Mm -hmm. So I think what happens when we dehumanize people, they're human and they're subhuman at the same time. So when the Nazis thought of Jews as rats, they didn't think of them as little furry rodents, you know, scurrying about. They thought of them as rat people. And that's way more disturbing. It's way scarier. Because of course, you, you know, my daughter had pet rats, right? You might be kindly disposed to rats right. or you might be scared of them, but a rat person, like that would creep anyone out. That, that's the stuff of nightmare and, and horror films. So kind of inadvertently, the dehumanizing move, well, it makes monsters. It, mm -hmm. it, it creates something that's even more toxic than thinking of others as, as subhuman animals that deserve killing. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. And so, I mean, going back to Kate's ideas, I mean, what makes sense, I, why it fits so well together is I remember um, reading in her book that she said, essentially, when it comes to misogyny, I mean, there's no real reason to hate people who do what you want them to do. So when we talk about sort of sexism, it's not so much the idea of I hate women, it's the idea of I actually hate women who speak out, or I hate women who sort of speak out, or sort of speak out about issues that are important to me that, you know, they don't share, or that where they don't share kind of the same beliefs that I do. And so for Kate, right. And so for Kate, she would essentially argue that I, that actually makes sense. Wow. So putting it together, she would argue that, right. In the times where you have this person who is essentially your subject and who's doing everything you want them to do, you would look at them as a human being, even though it would probably be as an inferior human being, but at the other end, when they're not doing that and when you, you know, sort of hate them and when you feel anger toward them and resentment, that's when you would sort of dehumanize them and put them even lower than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you could. I don't think Kate would would approve of that because she doesn't like dehumanization. Guys. Oh, yeah, you could certainly make that move. Just as a little tweak here, mm -hmm. another one of my my shticks mm -hmm. is um, I think in this literature, not just the humanization literature, but in the racism literature and the xenophobia literature, hate is overplayed. Mm -hmm. So it gives us. I think it's it's too simplistic. Um, so we talk about hate crimes and hate speech. Well, we need to broaden our vocabulary. Like fear is very, very important in these phenomena. These people are terrified. They're terrified of the people they persecute. This is generally a feature of genocide, a sense of righteousness, um, uh, contempt, which is different from hate. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we need a much richer vocabulary to do justice to these urgent social problems. And so how would you conceptualize it then in the form of fear, I guess? How, does, how is fear linked to a person viewing another person as a rat man or a rat human? Well, the, the, because they, f they feel that they must protect themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And right, so, right, so again, Adolf Hitler tells you, good German, that these, these Jews are planning to destroy everything that's good in the world. They're, and they're coming after you. 
-hmm. they're exploiting you. Well, and they're immensely powerful. That was how the propaganda worked. How do you feel? It's like, my God, help me. Help me. And then the magical solution is offered. Join us, you'll be strong. We'll band together. We'll unite as one. You know, Hitler, as Moni Carl said, would make this appeal for unity at the end of his speeches. Mm -hmm. And it made these people who are feeling so terrified and vulnerable feel powerful and full and strong and hopeful. Right. Very well. Uh, what do you what do you think about um, this is an idea to resist dehumanization um, as far as the internet goes uh, with that problem with uh, mm. echo chambers and algorithms being catered yeah. in certain ways? What if somebody were to follow, for example, say you're normally somebody who looks at left leaning politics mm-hmm. or somebody who normally looks at right leaning politics? Yeah. Maybe uh, then to follow both sides. And then maybe you would get information from all sides and then you'd be able to integrate the knowledge you get from, from that and maybe have more complete perspective. Yeah. Or to understand. Well, yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's always good because I think the best way to deal with people with whom one disagrees is to at least initially have a conversation with them. Everyone has reasons for what they believe, experiences they've had or what they've been told or so on. I always try to do that online. And so I do very much like to expose myself to people with different views. But of course, I have to do it in the spirit that I might change my views while being exposed to them. If you expose people to different views without that sensibility, then they simply reject what they hear say, isn't that stupid? Isn't that crazy? What a bunch of lies and so on. So I think there's a deeper issue about cultivating um, an openness to dialogue, which again, our, our educational system and our cultural culture generally does not foster sufficiently. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, I mean, before we sort of wrap things up, David, any kind of final words that you want to give our audience on humanity and dehumanization? Yeah, buy the book. Buy buy on <laughs> inhumanity. You won't regret it. It's a good book. It's my best book. Um, I believe that. I really believe that. I definitely. Go ahead. Apart from that, um, I mean, people, if they're interested, without shelling money out money for the book, they can go to my website. I have a lot of talks and things, uh, links to talks and resources up there, and I just think this is such an important and timely issue. It's an urgent issue. So my last words, we are faced before too long with what promises to be catastrophic climate change. The refugee problems that will be created by that are going to make today's refugee issues like look like, you know, child's play. It's a perfect storm for atrocity and dehumanization. We need to be prepared. So we need to educate ourselves on these, these matters, either through my work or through the work of others. I think that's my best parting words. (laughs) (laughs) And David, um, uh, your website, uh, what is your website? And if we wanted to follow you on social media. Yeah. uh, Um, uh, It's easy. Uh, Mm www.davidlivingstonsmith.com. And where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, I think it's dsmith underscore I am. 
I think it is. But type in David Livingstone Smith. Don't type in David Smith because there are too many of us. I'm assuming, yeah, there are a million of you guys. (laughs) (laughs) All right, David, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. This was really fun and and a great conversation. Absolutely. And we hope to have you back on when your new book comes out, whenever that's going to happen. Probably sometime next year. Yeah. Okay. Oh, awesome. Wow, man. Quick work. Well, yeah, I was doing them side by side. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. We and this is going to go up online, presumably. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll yeah. shoot you an email and we'll shoot me an email. Okay. Yeah, I'll promote it. Okay, cool. Talk soon. <laughs> okay. Later. Bye now. Yeah. Bye-bye. All right. <laughs> I had a little trouble getting out of that chat. So, <laughs> well, that's right. So if you wanted to follow our work, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, subscribe. Hit the bell. <laughs> Hit the bell. Mm-hmm. And you can also find us at the O4L Online Network at O4LOnlineNetwork.com. And you can find us on top under the STM podcast section. Thank you very much for watching and look forward to the next episode.